God, the uniqueness of God. His glory isn't like anything else we've known. <laughs> nothing like our own. Nothing at all like our own. Or the greatest achievements of human beings from the course, over the course of history. It is so unique. It is so separate. In fact, Psalm 138, verse 5, puts it this way. Great is the glory of the Lord. It's so, so great. Well, what is this glory? I mean, you know, that's one of those words that we hear when, if you're a Christian at a young age, you hear about glorifying God, and you hear about the glory of God. But what does it really mean? You know, how do we break it down into what is this thing we're talking about? And how does it impact us today? As you hopefully have a, a little outline, you'll be able to follow along on there because we won't be able to look up all these passages today together. But uh, this idea of the glory of God, Merrill Unger, I think, has one of the better definitions I've ever seen about it. And I put it up here on, on the screen for those of you who can read it from there. He in particular calls it the exercise and display of what constitutes the distinctive excellence of the subject of which it is spoken. So that's glory. It's like, what is this thing? And some have defined it with God as, it is what is in God that inspires awe in us. And this morning in the worship meeting, we were, we were referring to this, that, that God is awesome. He is amazing. And those who know him realize how awesome he is. And he inspires that awe in us unlike anything else or anyone else could ever do. In respect to God, his glory is the manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections, or such a visible effulgence as indicates the possession and presence of these. Now, what is an effulgence? For those of us that are a little challenged literally, <laughs> uh, I looked it up. It said it's a brilliant radiance or a shining forth. Uh, some define it as an outraying. Uh, sort of like the moon reflecting out the sun, the rays from the sun, that there's this effulgence, this brightness. God's glory is the correlative, and again, if you don't know what that means, it means it's so related that each implies or complements the other when you're talking about two different things, that they're a correlative of, of each other. Some of you are good with math, and you'll know that term from probably geometry or something, if I remember my 10th grade geometry. Anyway, God's glory is the correlative of his holiness. The two are related. Glory is the expression of holiness as beauty is the expression of health. I like that definition. It helps it put it down into real words for us. We know what that means to be uh, healthy and well physically, emotionally, and so forth, and, and to have a certain glow about us, a certain uh, obvious uh, evidence of health, whereas the opposite is true also when we're sick and we don't feel well we don't have that. So this is uh, somewhat referring to physical manifestations, but we're going to see that the glory of God is far more than just physical manifestations. Well, here's the good news. God has been revealing his glory throughout human history. Now, you may be wondering, I've never seen this glory. I, I don't know what, what are you talking about, this effulgence, this attributes of God, and so forth. Well, let's try to break it down a little bit. His glory has been seen throughout human history. How do we know that? Psalm 19.1 the psalmist tells us the heavens are telling forth the glory of God. Day to day brings forth knowledge. You know, when we look around, Romans 1, Paul told the Romans, we're without excuse because in the creation itself, and we talked about this last meeting too, in the creation itself, 
There's evidences of God's glory. Have you ever looked closely at those flowers you were planting recently? Have you ever looked in, and you're looking in the mirror and the lady's putting on your makeup, your guy's trying to get your hair fixed? Look at your eye. You ever thought of the complexities of that one part of your body? It's incredible. And scientists to this day don't fully understand how this thing can work like this. How did this happen? There's glories all around us of the handiwork of God. What about yourself? You know, it says in Psalm 8 that man is the crowning glory of God. That is how he defines us, as the crowning glory. He made a lot of other things, a lot of other creatures, but man, woman, we are the crowning glory of God. And he has made his glory known through that. Unfortunately, Romans 1 reminds us that we've exchanged this glory sometimes for the images of other things that are, are not truly of his glory. But he has also revealed his glory. If you go back in your Bibles, the Old Testament, constantly he's referring to his glory being revealed to the patriarchs, or uh, we're going to look at it particularly because it's a special evidence of his glory during the time of Moses and the children of Israel when he took them out of Egypt. Now, keep in mind, this is amazing. There, as far as I know, I'm not a history buff. I like history, but I've never been really great at it. But as far to my knowledge, and those of you who know more, correct me after I'm, I'm wrong, there has never in history been an entire nation that was subjected to slavery and then became an independent nation outside of that, free. I don't know of any other time that this has happened. And to do that <laughs> took an amazing amount of power and the glory of God to bring it about. You all know the story, no doubt, of Moses and the burning bush in the land of Midian. We're going to see a slide in a minute on, on Midian. In fact, Mike, why don't you go to that right now? Midian, you can see, is down. I've got a little pointer thing. I'll point at it. Right down this area here. Moses went down there when he saw this uh, Hebrew slave being mistreated by an Egyptian, and he killed the Egyptian, thought he was going to free these people, give them uh, a way out from this oppression. And instead, he became, he became a criminal. And the Egyptian government, who had been very favorable to him up until now, was putting him on their wanted list. And he got out of there. He ran for his life. He ended up down here in Midian, where he met his wife and his father-in-law, Jethro. And he lived here for 40 years in that area, in that wilderness, that desert. Well, through the burning bush experience 40 years later of coming to Midian, God told him, I want you to go back there to Egypt. Yes, that's where they wanted to kill you. That's right. You're still a wanted man. But I want you to go back there. There's a pharaoh there that's a different pharaoh now, and I want you to deliver my people. Oh, no, 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 Lord, I can't, I can't do that. I don't have the voice. I don't have the words. I, who am I to do that? I can't do that. Look at me. I'm not worthy. Uh, I, I, I'm a murderer. How, how do you expect me to go back and do this sort of a job? Well, God was very patient with him. He gave him his brother Aaron to help him. And indeed, he told him, I will go with you. And, and the Lord did go with him. That glory that he saw in that burning bush went with him back to, to, uh, to Egypt. Now, many didn't want to believe that he was going to be the deliverer, that God was going to use him to see them through it. And it, and it took some persuasiveness. 
on God's part through miracles, uh, the plagues that many of you know about in Exodus. We're not going to look at all those, but I do want us to look at where God's power was, was amazingly revealed at what we call Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And we'll see what this glory of God looked like when it, when it was first revealed. These people, these Israelites, they hadn't known the God of their father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for 400 years. They didn't know who this God was. Moses had to go and, and proclaim him to them, and he had to reveal himself to them. God did. And he did it in amazing ways, but especially at Mount Sinai. Well, this is a speculative thing, but Mount Sinai may well be this mountain in Arabia. If you read Galatians 4, I think it's verse 6, it talks about Hagar being a picture of Jerusalem, which is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, for some reason, when a mystic was sent in the 5th century AD from the Catholic Church to find Mount Sinai, she found the traditional site in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. There's no evidence, archaeologically or otherwise, that the children of Israel were ever there. <laughs> but because she proclaimed it to be the site, it has been accepted all that time as being the site. However, next slide, Mike. This mountain, you might notice the blackened top of it, where the, possibly the very glory of God we're going to read about was displayed, has multiple, multiple indications archaeologically to believe that this was the mountain that God took them to on the other side of the Red Sea in Arabia, not in Egypt, which is the Sinai Peninsula is still Egypt. He told them he was going to take his people out of Egypt, and he did. Well, let's look at Exodus 19 quickly, verses 16 to 18, where we see this display of God's glory to his people. Keep in mind, they had never seen anything quite like this. They had seen a pillar of fire and a cloud go before them, but this is something on a whole new level. Verse 16 of chapter 19 of Exodus. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that they, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. That's quite a scene. This was not a volcanic mountain, likely. This was God, as it says, descending upon it to reveal himself to his people. And it's amazing that he chose to do so. Now, look another look in chapter 24. We see another glimpse. Chapter 24 of Exodus, verses 16 and 17. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. This was an amazing revelation of the glory of God. He wanted his people to know, I'm your God. It's not those gods that, that were in Egypt that couldn't keep you there, or Pharaoh, or anyone else. I am your God. Even though Pharaoh wanted to be a God figure, he wasn't up to it, to the job. Well, we see many other instances, and we don't have time to really look into all of them, but in the tabernacle, God's personal dwelling, Exodus 40. We'll read just a few verses there, but we're going to skip some of the rest of this. Exodus 40. 
and verses 34 to 38. This is after the tabernacle had been constructed, God gave Moses the, the uh, plan to build it according to the heavenly model. And then the, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting once it was built, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel went on, onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here again you see this visible, physical manifestation of God's glory, leading them in his own dwelling with them and taking them with him. The wilderness wanderings throughout, you see his sovereign guidance. I'm going to let you look up those passages, uh, the, the one in Numbers that I mentioned there. During the, the reign of Solomon, 400 and some years later, Solomon had a, a mind because of his father David's desire to build a house for the Lord to follow through on the project. And it was a huge construction project. He built a glamorous temple for the Lord and that tells us in this passage in 1 Kings that it's cited there in your notes that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And again, it was an amazing sight that many had probably not seen in hundreds of years. During the prophet's time, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, each had visions that God gave them of his glory to remind his people, I haven't changed. I'm the same God that I always was, the one who brought all this into being, the one who oversaw your, your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who brought you out of, out of Egypt and into your land, the one who was with the kings, and now I'm here with you during this time too. And uh, so he revealed himself to them. It's also been revealed in the person of Christ and in his first coming. We went over this a bit in the worship meeting, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It makes it very clear here that God, at various times and in different ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, in these last days spoken to us by his Son. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Lord Jesus Christ was the glory of God. Only Philippians 2 tells us he veiled that glory. He didn't show it all the time. John 2, in your notes, will show you that when he went to the wedding at Cana, it was his first uh, recorded miracle. It says this was the beginning of his manifestation of his glory. He revealed his glory in turning that water into wine. He did it further with Lazarus, you'll remember, toward the end of his ministry on earth in, in John 11, where he said this sickness was to show forth the glory of God. And he told everybody that before he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is so you will see the glory of God. Uh, so the miracles that he did showed the glory of God. John 17 tells us that he had that glory with his Father before the worlds were even created. The incarnation of Christ, you see these shepherds hearing an announcement accompanied by what? The glory of God was there at that time. The transfiguration of Christ is probably the most obvious example. And we'll just take a quick look at Luke 9, verses uh, 29. I'm sorry. 28 to 32, Luke 9, 28 to 32. And we'll see in this example where he took up uh, Peter, James, and John with him 
to the top of this mountain and was transfigured before them at what this real glory of his would look like. If you and I saw it today, we would have the same reaction, no doubt, that they did. Verse 28, it came to pass about eight days after these things, he took Peter, John, and James, went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe was white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. The glory of the Lord was manifested during this time. And it was of such a nature, Peter later wrote about it in 2 Peter 1, and he described it as a, a wonderful glory that it deeply impacted his life. John also talked about it in John 1.14. The word had become flesh, and he, he has, uh, full of grace and truth, and, he, and his glory uh, was manifested when he came to earth, especially in the transfiguration. Well, beyond all of this, God's glory is still being revealed through his followers, uh, those of us who put our faith in him. Uh, he has manifested in us the glory that, uh, that he has to some extent as far as reflecting it through us. And there's some, some really good passages about this. I've cited a couple. Ephesians 3 uh, is one. And, and you'll see in this a reference to uh, the riches of his glory. In this morning meeting, we talked about the, the, the glory of his grace. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, too, in a minute. But here we see in both of these passes about, passages about the riches of his glory. So uh, Luke, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. His glory is being revealed in the church. For this reason, Paul wrote the Ephesians, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole, whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all age, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. In this, this in the original language, it's like Paul can't come up with, with enough amazing adjectives to try to describe this scene. He's so carried up with the glory of all of this. And the fact that this mystery he's been talking about earlier in this letter, the mystery of the gospel coming to the world through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for people's sins. This was a mystery hidden from all those Old Testament saints. But what a glory. This was the greatest of all glories that God had come to, to uh, accommodate our sin and pay for it. Well, we also know that God's glory is still going to yet be revealed. Not veiled anymore. We see it now, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, as sort of like through a veil. We sang the song about face to face and a darkling veil between right now. Someday it's going to be in its full effulgence, and we're going to be able to endure it at that time. 
Duane Gardner mentioned to us a few Lord's Days ago about how if we saw the full glory of God right now, we couldn't handle it. It's part of teaching us about God's mercy because if he really showed us his full glory and what we deserve, the words Duane used was we'd be blown away. None of us could stand before it. Romans 3 tells us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're not there, folks. We're, we're like so, so beyond the glory of God, and we deserve condemnation and judgment because of our sin and our disobedience and our unwillingness to submit to him who, who des deserves to be submitted to. And yet, we see his glory revealed to us. And it's going to be even more so. At Christ's second coming, Matthew 24, 29, and 30, describes it as the Son of Man will come with the clouds with glory, great glory. That's what we're going to see someday. Also, during the millennial reign of Christ, Matthew 25, 31, talks about his glory being made known to the nations during that millennial era, that thousand years when he reigns on earth. We also see in the future state in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, his glory is going to illuminate those that, that Jerusalem and the new world. We're not going to need a sun, people. We, suns are, you know, they're great right now. We, we need that sun, don't we? We're not going to need it then. At that time, the glory of the Lord will, will be all that we need, will illumine the whole world, and his glory will truly fill the earth like it should be. Well, all that just by way of introduction. <laughs> now we get to some of the real heavy stuff. I want to read a, uh, an illustration. If I could, there was a man who sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C., and he started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. This was in 2007. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that 1,100 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace stopped for a few seconds, and then hurried up to meet his schedule. A few minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw the money in the till without stopping and continued to watch. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him, but the man looked at his watch and started to walk again. Clearly, he was late for work. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother tugged him along, hurried, hurriedly, but the boy stopped to look at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, forced them to move on. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it. No one applauded nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the most talented musicians in the world. He had just played one of the most intricate pieces ever written on a violin worth three and a half million dollars. Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out at a theater in Boston where the seats averaged $100 each. This is a real story. Joshua Bell playing incognito in the metro station was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and priorities of people. Now, why do I read that? Because, in a very real sense, the glory of God has been revealed many, many times from before the creation of this world. And I think sometimes you and I are like those 
hurrying commuters. You know, we're so busy with our lives. We've got to do this. We've got to go there. We've got to take care of these problems that we fail to stop long enough to really absorb and take in this amazing glory of God. The most amazing thing that the world has ever seen, and we don't often take time to stop and see it. Well, how can we see the glory of God today? And I'm sure you can come up with a lot of other reasons. These are a few things that, that the Lord, I think, impressed on my heart. And they've been a challenge to me, to me personally, as I want, I want to see that glory. I want it to impact my life. Well, here's a few things. Believe in the work of Christ on your behalf. If we can't see who he is, what we've read in Hebrews, that he is the brilliance of the glory of God, then we won't see his glory probably at all, except in a muted sense in creation. We may notice something out there that interests us, some creature or uh, tree or something that that fascinates us the way it is. But unless we see it in another believer, unless we see it in the word of God, unless we hear the gospel, the message of salvation and our need for a savior and that God in his great mercy became that for us, we probably uh, will not see that glory. We also need to spend time alone with him. Let's go back to Exodus 33 for a minute. Exodus 33, verses 7 to 11. I've really come to love this passage. We were looking at it again this morning in the first meeting. Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp. Now keep in mind, this is after he had gone up and God had given him the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws to regulate the children of Israel according to to God's standards. And meanwhile, the people were worshiping a false god, a golden calf at the bottom of the the, uh, mountain, which, by the way, Jabalah laws, there is an altar with calf etchings in the rock. You may have seen a picture of it earlier. Mike might have gone through it for you. Anyway, uh, yeah, so God wasn't very happy. (laughs) In fact, God was talking about consuming all those people, wiping them out, because he could do it like that. They're gone. And he would be just to do so, because he'd already told them they were not to do that. So Moses took his tent, he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, called it the tabernacle of meeting. It came to pass, everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Well, he wants to do that with us, doesn't he? Those of us who know him, he wants to talk to us. He does that through his word. He does that through others who come to us and share with us things that we need to hear at times. He does that through any number of ways he can speak to our hearts. He also wants us, part of conversation is to talk back, right? (laughs) It's hard to have a relationship with somebody and only one person do all the talking. 
So we have the opportunity through prayer, just as Moses very boldly came into the presence of God, the New Testament tells us we have an intercessor that we can go to boldly as well and talk directly to God through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an important thing. Spend a time alone with God. I know we're all busy. I know every one of us here, we have school or we have work or we have families, we have uh, obligations that are pressing on us that we feel the struggles of. And, and we also have things like televisions and computers that draw us away or phones that take us away from what little time we have available to spend with God. And it has to be intentional. We have to say, I want to spend this time with you, Lord. Just like Moses went out to that tabernacle of meeting to be with God. It's a challenge to all of us. And now, a little further on, we keep reading in Exodus 33. Ask him to show us his glory. Now, this, I love this passage because we, we were talking about this again. And I'm sorry I keep referring to the first meeting, but it really did focus a lot on this. And that it shows what God's glory is in very practical ways. Not just in these great manifestations, these physical ways that are awesome and mighty and shows his power. But this is amazing. Moses said to the Lord in verse 12, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He didn't know if there were going to be anybody left after God's judgment. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have also found grace in my sight. How does Moses know God knew him by name? Well, you remember when he was at the burning bush? What came out of the bush? It said the Lord was there and it says, Moses, Moses, God called him by name. Do you know if you're one of God's children, he knows your name too? <laughs> he knows who you are. Now he knows your name, but <laughs> Moses says, and I have also found grace in your sight. Well, all of us who are true believers in Jesus Christ have found an awful lot of that <laughs> in the sight of God. None of us deserves forgiveness from our sins, but we've, we've been given that through the grace of God. And consider, he says, uh, now, now therefore I pray, here's Moses' prayer, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Wow, there's a lot there. You know, those are the kind of prayers we can bring to God. I want to know you better. I'll never understand you until eternity when I really see your full nature, your full glory. But in the meanwhile, Lord, I want to know as much as I can know about you and who you are and how amazing you are, how awesome you are. That was Moses' prayer. And God answered, my presence will go, and then some of your Bibles in italics say with you, and I will give you singular rest. God was saying, okay, I'm going to take care of you, Moses. He wouldn't say anything about all those other Israelites down at the foot of the mountain, was he? And then Moses boldly said, if your presence does not go, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Now catch this. What did Moses say? 
Please, show me your glory. You ever said that to God? I want to challenge you today. That's become a new cry of mine. Lord, show me your glory. I'm not worthy to see the glory of God. Was Moses a murderer? Were the children of Israel who had just been grumbling and complaining all the way through their, their trek through the wilderness against Moses and against God, were they worthy to see his glory? I don't think so. But I think we can follow Moses' example here, especially when we think of what that means. What did God answer him? And this I love. Verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There's the glory of God. Is that what you want to see? <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see God's goodness. I want to see his grace, his mercy, his compassion. Later on, he talks about his forgiveness being all a part of all of this whole equation. That's what I want to see. I want to see that glory. You know, there's a, there's a thing out there. Some of you are probably aware of it, especially you younger people. It's called theodicy. And what it deals with is the idea, these are some of the smart people in the world who think about this stuff, that if God is all good, just like he says he is here, but if there's terrible things that happen in my life, and if I look around and I see people dying and in pain and hurting and, and awful things happening to me, then he must not be powerful. He must not be all-powerful or he would have stopped that. Or they say, you know what? If God is all-powerful and he can do anything he wants, then he must not be a good God because look what he lets come into this world. You ever heard that? There are a lot of people who, I mean, they agonize over this. Many genuinely feel it deeply. But let me just challenge you that the God of this universe, when he reveals his glory, he will show to you and to me that he is good. He is good beyond anything we know of good. Someday we'll all know about that in all of its fullness. Right now, there's some amount of faith we have to express in that and believe it. Well, Moses, I can tell you, believed it. And then another thing, worship him with other believers is another way we can see God's glory today. And the passage I cite there is, again, when Solomon finished the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled it. It was to such an extent that the Levites were there and they were singing. What were they singing about? The goodness and the mercy of God and the glory of the Lord filled the place. Because that's who he is. That's what he is. He's good and he's merciful. Well, how does this impact us? We've run out of time, so I just want to run down some of these points, and I hope that you'll take this home and talk to the Lord about this. How can you affect me with this glory that's yours? How do you want me to respond? Well, first, we believe that God is good and powerful. Look what happened to Moses after this episode in chapter 34. God called him up from the tabernacle of meeting, and he said, come on up to the mountain. We're going to redo this whole thing with the, with the commandments. This time, you bring the rocks. I'll take care of inscribing on them, and, and he did. God did all that. So Moses goes up there in verse 5, Then the Lord descended in the cloud of chapter 34, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is, this is who God is. This is his name. 
The Lord Yahweh in Hebrew, I wish I had time to talk more about this, but it has to do with his ever-existent abilities and his being set apart from anyone else. And he passed before Moses and proclaimed, here's what he said. Again, this is his glory passing before him that, that Moses asked to see. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So what did Moses do? He made haste. He bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And I think that's one of the things that should impact us. You know, it's important for us to be struck by the goodness of God. And the first meeting on Sunday morning here, and other churches have their own versions, but what the focus is, is on God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, God's forgiveness, overall God's goodness. So if you want to see the glory of God, and you want it to impact your life, I challenge you, don't skip that meeting. Oh, it's nice to sleep in sometimes on Sunday morning. But don't be like the people rushing by the violinist that, that missed so much beauty, that missed so much amazingness because they were in too much of a hurry or they were too concerned about their own things. Another thing is we choose to obey and serve him. We're enabled to suffer for him joyously. We reflect his glory to others and we're accountable to him after seeing his revealed glory. That's a very, very convicting passage, Numbers 14. I would just share it there for your consideration. Um, Basically, it's a summation of they're wanting to go into the promised land that God told them. He's going to take the Israelites into Canaan. And on the brink of it, they sent out these spies. And guess what? Ten of them said, oh, no, those people are so big. We can't go in there. They're going to wipe us all out. We don't have all the weapons and all the things that we need to fight these giants. Only two of them said, no, you know what? God's going with us. We've seen his glory. We know what he can do. We know his goodness. He's made a promise. He's going to take us in there. We're going to go. Let's go. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. So this is the passage where God says, they have seen my glory, yet they have disobeyed me and they have a hard heart. Very convicting, you know, and I, and, I, and I say that thinking of myself. How often have I in my life, having known the glory of God through his redemptive work on the cross, through other believers who have shown goodness and kindness and faithfulness to me over the years and compassion, through so many ways that God has been good and providing and all that, and yet I can still be disobedient in my heart, and yet I can still uh, want to do things my own way and not his way. Well, our time is up, but just a challenge to maybe take more time uh, to look at some of these things. Um, I'll, I'll finish with one last illustration just quickly. At age 32, William Cowper passed through a great crisis in his life. He tried to end his life by taking laudanum. Then he hired a horse-drawn cabbie, ordering the driver to take him to the Thames, intending to throw himself from the bridge. It was one of London's foggiest nights. They drove for an hour without reaching the chosen spot. Disgruntled, he decided to go out and walk there. He found to his surprise that they had actually gone in a circle and he was back at his own doorstep. The next morning, he fell on a knife, but the blade broke. He then tried to hang himself and was cut down unconscious but still alive. 
Then one morning, in a moment of strange cheerfulness, he took up his Bible and read a verse in the letter to the Romans. In a moment, he received strength to believe and rejoiced in the forgiving power of God. Sometime later, Cowper summed up his faith in God's loving dealing with him in a great hymn which became a favorite among Christians. God moves in mysterious ways. Some of you probably know this song. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God, we thank you that you are so amazing, you are so awesome, and we have only seen a very, very small amount of what your glory is, Lord, and we know someday we'll see it in its fullness. In the meanwhile, we pray that we might become more and more aware of it in the goodness and the grace and the compassion the mercy and the forgiveness that has been shown to us in so many ways by your kindness in your hand. Lord, help us to be those who would reflect your glory just as Moses' face reflected the glory that he saw from you and that others would see you in us and be drawn to you and your greatness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.